Um, I just want to say that one of the reasons I can actually read Hebrew is because of this man uh, helping me over at Fuller. Even though I lived in Israel, I should have been much better. Thank you. <laughs> if I say anything, mispronounce it, and a cloud comes from the sky, please forgive me. <laughs> I hope I'm saying it right. Shir Chamele David, Adonai Lo Gvalibi, Velo Ramu Ane, Velo Chalafti Bigdalot, Velifnach Lot Memene, Im Lo Shiriti Vidomamuti Nafshi, Kogamol Olai Imo, Kogamal Olai Nafshi, Yechel Yisrael El Adonai Maata Vaam Olam. Yahweh, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and things too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like a weaned child that is with me, Israel, hope in Yahweh from this time on and forevermore. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Pastor Colin. I've been wanting to hear these psalms in Hebrew, and this is the shortest one that we've uh, shared together, and so it made sense to vocalize it in that way. So thank you. You can hear the poetry when you hear it in the language in which it was written. Hey everybody, I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FBC Pasadena. Uh, and I get to bring to you this morning the last of a set of messages on the Psalms. Uh, I want to tell you a story to start though. Um, so we've got like several, I've met a handful of, of Fuller students here. We just, if you would be so brave as to raise your hand if you are at Fuller right now and you're with us, just kind of get a glance of who you might be. Uh, okay. So I'm going to tell you something that happened to me when I was in grad school, and you just kind of nod along that this is a thing that you can relate to. Uh, it was my first year, probably my first semester, and we were reading Augustine's Confessions. Have you all read Confessions yet? No? What are they doing at Fuller, friends? It's Confessions. Okay, so, uh, reading, and, well, let's, let me put that in air quotes. We were in, so you have like your big seminar class, which is 200 students or so, and you break out into these smaller classes of about like 20 to 30, and in there is where you get to talk about everything. So we were in the room with like 20 or 30, and we were supposed to be talking about everything. And uh, I'm sort of sitting there realizing that we were supposed to have read at least half of Augustine by class. And how much did I read? None, Augustine. That's how much Augustine I had read. Because I had a kid at home, I had like three jobs in grad school, I couldn't read everything, it's absurd. Listen, you can't read everything in school. Seth, we just met in the back, like you can't read everything, right? You've got two kids with you. So, I'm sitting in class and I'm thinking to myself, just be cool. Like look like you know what you've done, but keep a low profile. And if you know me, you know it's not my like MO to keep a low profile. I do love to talk, <laughs> and I'd spent a lot of time in other precepts talking, and so it's like five minutes till the end of class, 
and the, the teacher, right, looks me in the eyes and I looked him in the eyes and realized I've made a huge mistake that we made eye contact. And he asks me, um, tell me, you know, tell me what you found in this book. One of the skills you learn in grad school, and this prepares you well for preaching, is to just pretend <laughs> when you don't know. I rambled on for like four minutes and then it was time to go and we snuck out. And it was not apparent, it was definitely apparent to the teacher I hadn't read, but to everyone else, not so much. Uh, Brian, can you throw the first slide up here? That was me. <laughs> there is this feeling that you, we got at least when we were, I was in seminary, that you're there to learn all the right answers. You, we, the degree that I finished with was a Masters of Divinity. That is a stupid degree. Like, that's a dumb name for a degree. You can't master the sacred. But that was the project. And so, when you're in class and your teacher asks you a question, you can't say, I don't know. Or at least you're not supposed to, or it'll affect your grade. It's actually not a great way all the time to prepare for ministry, because it turns out there's just a lot we don't know. There's a lot about faith, about the Bible, about God, about prayer, about suffering. That just it, it doesn't always compute. My son, Judah, is in sixth grade, and he's in this cool math program. And uh, we'll do homework together because I don't remember math anymore. And uh, what are we doing now? Absolute values and expressions and equations. I don't even know if that's a real sentence for math. Doing integers, you're doing advanced algebra. Anyway, when we're doing our problems, it's fine. It's multiple choice for his homework unless one of the choices is none of the above. Right? Because then you don't know. That's a lot of times how it feels whenever we come to our tradition. Now, one of the things that I have tried to sort of embrace, and you've sensed this in the last year or so, is that sometimes it's okay to just say, I don't know. This is fully a theological statement right here. I don't know. Now, a lot of this job, a lot of what it means to be a pastor is often to have people show up in conversation with me or with another minister and hand us their sense of, uh, of anxiety. And sometimes it's anxiety over a complex issue in their life. Usually it's some kind of suffering. It's something that doesn't make sense in the text. It's something they've read and in the past it made sense, but now it doesn't anymore. And the sort of the ground has fallen out and they hand you and they say, like, can you help me figure this out? And it's tempting in that moment to give answers, all the time to give answers, even if the answers are really, really simplified and false sometimes. And it takes a certain amount of restraint to sit with someone who needs an answer and say to them, I just don't know. And, and we can sit in that space together. This morning, the psalm sounds like it's written from the perspective of someone whose last words that are recorded, or I just don't. I don't know. The book of Job is the book that happens right before the book of Psalms. If you remember the book of Job, we've actually talked about it a couple of times now. Uh, quick refresher, Job's a righteous man and Job has a lot of stuff. He's like, he's in good shape. His 401k is quite flush. He's got lots of kids and lots of animals. And in the Bible times, that's good to go. But everything kind of goes wrong in Job's life. And then the whole rest of the book of Job is this long poem 
about suffering. And there is this kind of central problem at the heart of Job. And it's, it's one that we talk about a lot. It's like the problem of suffering or the problem of evil. And it often works itself out like a math equation. So it's either or, right? Either God is all-powerful, because Job is suffering. That's the like known quantity. Job is suffering. So if God is all-powerful and Job is suffering, then God's a jerk. Because Job is righteous, and righteous people don't suffer. So do you, you see the problem? It's like a, and if it's a math equation, there's just a not equal sign right there. God is all powerful. Job is righteous and suffering. That means that this all powerful God just doesn't happen to be a very good God. Or Job is righteous and suffering, and God is good. God wants good, but God just doesn't have the stuff to pull it off. Those, that's how the math equation works itself out. And so the entirety of the book of Job is working out that tension between all of these realities you get to the end of the book of job and god finally speaks the the whole book is job and job's friends arguing with one another back and forth and back and forth and then god speaks in chapter 38 it's a beautiful section of poetry i'll read you the first couple of lines the lord answered job out of the whirlwind out of the chaos i'm not even sure if this whirlwind wasn't the product of Job and his friends' conversations, like they had created a storm in their conversation, and then God speaks out of it and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, I'll question you, and you will declare to me, which is a terrible thing, terrible thing, to have a God character say to you in a story. You hear it? Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, which is a very strange idiomatic way of saying, like get ready to get sucker punched by God. I'm going to question you and you're going to answer me. And then God begins to lay out what is beyond knowledge. In the ancient times, there's all kinds of things about the universe, about the cosmos that just don't make sense. Where does the rain come from? Where does lightning come from? Why do things die the way they do? What in the world is happening with flight and when the eagle takes off? And how do these mountains show up? And where is the stream coming from? Are the waters down below? Do they, right? It's all mystery. And so when God speaks, God says, there is more happening here than you can understand, Job. Did you father the rain? Do you know where it goes to rest? Do you know what's happening with the lioness and her cubs? There is this entire world that is just a little bit beyond. And Job is listening and absorbing. And Job finds voice again and speaks in the last chapter of this book. And Job answers in a way that sounds a lot like Psalm 131. You heard heard Psalm 131 read twice for us in Hebrew and in the English. My heart's not too lifted up. My eyes aren't lifted up too high. I'm not chasing after knowledge beyond what I can reach. I've calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child upon myself. I'm content. O Israel, wait on the Lord now and forevermore. This is the language that Job speaks with. But listen to the way Job says it. This is someone who's sitting in a seminar class in seminary and someone asks them the question. God asks all the questions and Job finally knows to say, I don't, I just don't know. And that's okay. 
Job answered the Lord. It's chapter 42. I know you can do all things. I know that you can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here I will speak. I will question you and you will declare to me, says the Lord. And so Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear and now my eyes see you. Therefore, I'm content with myself and I repent in dust and ashes. There is this humbling that happens in Job. Realizing that there is this knowledge beyond. So this week, I've been sitting with Psalm 131. Brian, will you go to the next one for me? Let's go one more. I was telling somebody this morning, this thing happens to me whenever I preach. And really, Corey, you're the one who's like most in the know about this. Where anytime I pick up a text for the week or for the weeks before I get up here to speak, uh, I'm often visited by what I would call like the shadow side of that text and what it does in my own life. And so Psalm 131 was the text for today. And uh, I've not been in like a super chill way for this last week. Corey shaking your head knowingly my wife who lives with me yesterday is our sabbath on the saturday when we keep sabbath as a family and we try to like set the work aside try to look each other in the eye we cleaned the garage out yesterday oh my goodness and as we were going to bed you asked from the other room what are you what are you preaching about tomorrow i knew she had an had an agenda with the question it wasn't benign I said, it's Psalm 131, hoping that would end the conversation. She said, what is it about? And I said, it's about being like calm and chill inside. (laughs) And you said, ah, that makes sense. (laughs) Like I was just a mess yesterday. I was all kinds of, I was the opposite of this psalm. And I knew it the whole day. I knew I felt that way, this sort of inner turmoil. And it wasn't for any particular reason other than that I had been paying attention. I'd been paying deep attention for the week to my own heart posture. I had tried to take a step back from things that I usually distract myself with, right? Like checked my phone less that week, read less of the news. Each time I would find myself wanting to rush to what I would call like the pacifier of life is for someone my age. I, I set it aside and I, I tried to focus in. Calm and quiet. And it just, it didn't work. It did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Which, I felt like I was on to something, even though I was finding the shadow side of it. Be careful what you pray about. Be careful what psalms you sit with, was the lesson that I found out. So let's listen to it one more time. Next slide, Brian. Psalm 131. I'm going to read it for you one more time. By the way, I don't have a ton to say about this psalm because a psalm that talks about not being too high and lofty with my thoughts and with my heart and with my eyes sure seems to say the preacher should know when to stop talking, right? Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore.
There's this central image at the middle of this psalm. Let's go to the next one. It's of a mother with a child. And it's of a particular kind of relationship of the mother to the child. I love, I love when the Bible so explicitly gives us an image of God that is maternal. That has this like softness to it. That it's kind of soft power. So the image here is of a mother who would carry a child. You would nurse a child in this time till a little bit older than we do now, up to three or four even. And it would be this progress of development, of becoming for the child. But the child, when not nursing, would often be carried on the back of the mother, just like this child is with the mother here. And uh, there are these instances in the Bible that talk about God as mother, God carrying Israel, God carrying us. In the book of Deuteronomy, when they're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, it says of Benjamin that, that, that God surrounds and covers this tribe, this people, these children. It says that we rest between God's shoulder blades. So lovely. That's the image. Now, here's what goes along with that image. Uh, we talked about this on Thursday in our, uh, our study group, sermon study group at noon, about as children, like as babies, learn to find their own voice, their own person, their own agency in the world. So I have two kids. Judah is, how old are you now, man? 11? You're 11. I forgot after last week. You're 11. Ruthie's seven. It's been a long time since y'all have like nursed or had pacifiers, right? Or slept in a crib. But I still remember because it wasn't that long ago. Uh, and so I knew, and maybe you do too, especially if you have like uh, a kid who still needs a lot of attention in the night, how exciting it is when they can sleep through the night. How exciting it is when they can put their own pacifier back in their mouth. Like that was a big deal. They can do this motion. Got it. Part of raising a child is helping them to not need you anymore in little bitty baby steps. So for a while, like the only thing that would work for our kids to calm them was if Corey would nurse them, bring them close, hold them, feed them, rock them, knows that they're safe. There comes a point though where like they take the bottle and mom's not anywhere. Dad gets to do it. And so are they going to be okay without you? Are they going to be okay with me? Because I'm me and I might have been studying Psalm 131 that week and there might be a whole wreck and I'm giving off all the wrong kind of energy, right? So they've got to learn how to deal with dad. Or they're in bed and at some point nursing is replaced by something like a pacifier, by a thumb, and they're starting to learn how to care for themselves. There came a point where our kids were crying and you kind of, at some point they've got to cry until they fall asleep. We weren't cruel about it. I'm going to get some emails about parenting right now. I know it. But like, can they soothe themselves? And so we would go in and you put your hand on their stomach or on their, on their, on their back and pat them and let them know you were there and you'd leave and you'd come back and you'd let them know that you were there. And sooner or later, they know how to calm themselves down when they're crying. That is, it feels like that's just what it means to grow up is to learn how to calm yourself. Now, the problems become more intense as we get older. It's not like this process stops. 
In fact, often I will try to calm myself against my family. That's the problem. And they'll have to say to me, like, you just need to, just need to put your hand right here and be kind to yourself. Corey has this thing that she tells me and tells other people when they're having a season of like of anxiety or worry. Uh, speak to yourself like you would speak to a close friend. There's like really deep wisdom in that. This psalm is the movement of God speaking to us deep truths of God sort of. And then us knowing that we are safe and secure and we can speak to ourselves. Like a weaned child on its mother is the first line. And then the next line is like a weaned child on itself. That somehow we can self-soothe. The language for self is the language for soul, which is the word nefesh in Hebrew. This word is one of these kind of big expansive words. It also means your, your throat, your thirst, or your breath. And that's exactly what it is like to feel like the world is sort of collapsing in on you. It's to lose your breath. In fact, whenever I get really stressed out and anxious, the first thing I do is forget how to breathe. The other thing that, by the way, you think that I'm your pastor, but it feels like basically all I do is tell you wise things that Corey has said to me back to you. And then you pay me to say them. I'll be stressed and I won't even know it. And uh, I think like, I'm just crushing life here. I'm, everything's working out, but I know that it's not right. I know that I'm heavy and I'll breathe like this. Tell me if this is your breathing. Like holding my breath. And it has this really anxious sound to it. Uh, our last dog did this, Albie, because he, he was like a ball of anxiety. And he always breathed like that. It was not fun to have in the house. And Corey will say, babe, breathe. Let's go to the next slide. Babe, breathe. You would remind me, you couldn't breathe for me, right? That's not how this works. But reminds me that I already have the breath in me. I have calmed and have quieted my nefesh, myself, my soul, my breath. You have your own version of this. Let's go to the next one. The movement of the psalm is the movement of maturity. It's the movement of discipleship. It's the movement of becoming. First, there is a quiet child, but then there's a child who can quiet herself. And this is really, I think, at the heart of what it means to follow after and to trust God. That you can be calm. You can calm yourself because you, you know that, like Job says, God, I know that everything is possible for you. And so I am content. It's like first someone saying to you, hey, breathe. And then you saying to yourself, just breathe. It's like someone coming up to you or God coming up to you and you're crying. Just that feeling of 
We have to use the language that we know, the hand of God holding you, or like you're nestled in between the shoulder blades of the divine, right? Or like Jesus would say, underneath the shadow of God's wings. And then at some point, you will not know, you will not feel like God is right there. But can you, can I, can we put our hand on our chest and breathe and know that we are okay? Next slide. Do y'all remember baby Jessica? I was four, I think, when this happened. That just dated me. Um, Baby Jessica, for those of you who don't know, fell down a well. This is like the scariest thing I remember. This is my first memory, I think. And it was terrifying. She was down there for a long time. And people were really upset about it. Apparently, when like small 18-month-old children fall in wells, everybody paid attention at the time. And it went on for quite a while before they could rescue her. And so they were scared that she would start to panic down in the well. And so they decided they were going to lower a microphone down so they could talk to her and she could talk to them and they could say to her, baby, breathe, right? They could, whatever they could do to reach her and let her know that it was going to be okay. And do you remember what happened when the mic made it down there? She was singing. And later they realized, they found out she was singing the songs that her mom had taught her as she was growing up. She had been comforted well at some point in her life and could call forth that comfort in the time of shadows and darkness. She was singing the songs that she knew. I actually think it's a little bit about what Jesus is doing on the cross when Jesus cries out, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? God, God seems absent at the time and Jesus just cries out the songs of his youth. Knows the melody. So how do you self-soothe when the world is falling apart? There's this thing that happens in uh, the Bible and in the Psalms especially. It's just like really, really practical wisdom. So uh, there's another Psalm that talks about Only in God is my soul at rest. Only in God is my soul quiet. Psalm 62. Then it goes for a little bit more and starts to talk about what it's like to live in the world. And then the psalm changes. It's it's like this barely perceivable change in the Hebrew. And in English, it doesn't show up usually. It says, only in God be quiet, my soul. Something has happened between rest and repose, calm and quiet, and then chaos. And the psalmist calls him or herself back into calm. Only in God is my soul at rest. Only in God settle down. Because here's what happens, right? Rest and repose, calm and quiet, is not a function of our escaping into some calm and quiet space. It's being able to calm and quiet yourself as a child when the dog barks or when someone rings the doorbell or lightning strikes and thunder hits, right? And you can calm yourself back down. And so life is not it's just all like take a breath and just hear the fan. That's not too bad. You could maybe maintain a sense of calm and chill, but life is not like that, right? Life is more like... So then the question, how do you self-soothe when your world is upside down? 
How do you calm and quiet yourself when things fall apart? Because it doesn't stay like that. Right? You know that feeling? Like everything's going really well. I'm crushing this contemplation thing, right? And then you get a call or you get that email or you get the test results back and it's... And you're going to reach for understanding. You're going to reach for knowledge. You're going to reach for explanations. And they're just not going to come all the time. And Psalmist says, I've calmed and I've quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child upon myself. And then calls out to the community, Israel, wait, hold, hope in the Lord today and forevermore. Why? Next slide. Because there is this deep truth that grounds us all of the time. God says, I will fight for you. All you have to be is still. There is so much about being this way in this world that makes us want to fix things. It makes us want to put things in their place to draw out explanations. And it is hard to be still. In L.A., it's like really hard to be still and to rest and to trust. But if this is true, God saying, I will fight for you, you just have to settle down. This is not a truth that disciples know at the time of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, it takes them quite a while to get it. Actually, it's post-resurrection that they get it. Even when darkness falls and they're in the garden and Jesus is being arrested, one of the disciples does what? Pulls out a sword and slices. Has the inability to simply be still. How many of us feel like we have to fight for God and assume God is not fighting for us? Frenetic activity we call religion because we can't just settle down. Job does it for chapter after chapter after chapter. And then finally God speaks and says, you don't know as much as you think you know. And that's going to have to be okay. Next slide. Years ago, this is one of these pictures that just haunts me. Years ago in Ukraine, there's all of these protesters, all these counter-protesters. There's just all of this violence and anxiety. And this group of Orthodox priests shows up at the line of violence. And they hold church. Right in between the chaos of the world. They step in and they plant themselves. There is another picture that goes with this one of a priest offering a prayer And it was as though one of the congregants is there just on their knees in the middle of guns and shields and fire and vengeance. And this person is praying and the priest has his stole over the person offering them penance. And in this picture, somehow the cross has found its way into the center of violence once again. And the priest's 
and others are trying to witness to another way. What they're doing is they are entering into the space of high chaos and standing still. They are not doing the fighting. They know this deeper truth that God fights for them. And so they just rest. Because, right, it isn't just by the easy creek or by the top of the mountain that we are called to be calm and quiet. It is in the midst of the world. It looks like this for Jesus. He's on the water, right, on the sea, and the storm hits. And what's Jesus doing when the storm hits? Dude's sleeping. He's resting. I don't know if he knew there was a storm. He didn't seem too broken up about it when they told him. But they're freaking out. Have not yet absorbed what Jesus has been telling them. So they wake Jesus up like, could you please save us? Would you pay attention? Jesus is like, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Such small faith. And he calms it. Yeah, like Jonah, calms it. Then the next thing that happens in the Gospels is Jesus and them land at an area where there's a cemetery and there are two who is said are to be demon-possessed, which is just another way of saying the storm had moved in. Right? It was right inside. It was so intense, this storm in these individuals, that people could not even pass through this region. And Jesus calms it. And in the process of calming storms within and without, the disciples are supposed to be learning to not be afraid. It takes until the resurrection for the text to say that Jesus opens their eyes, their hearts, their minds so that they can understand what has been happening the whole time. With this picture, the person who's writing about it's writing about contemplative practice. This language of calm and quiet soul is the language of contemplation. It's the language of repose of the heart. It says, contemplative practice is not the domain of the lazy priest or the indolent monk. Living a contemplative life certainly means guarding against undue stress or frenetic activity. But a life that is contemplative is not just a life lived at ease. In other words, this invitation to stillness and quiet is not so you can have a spa day with Jesus. Right? That is not what we're talking about. Though relaxation, poise, and the quelling of free-floating anxiety can be a byproduct of a deeply contemplative practice. These are not its goals. On the contrary, the contemplative is a soldier, and her practice is preparation for and the certainty of a face-to-face confrontation with evil. They run from the distractions of the world only to expose the clamor of evil and sin in the quiet of stillness and the light of an unwavering gaze. To confront there the enemy face-to-face as if in a mirror. Because that's what really happened to me this week, is that when I slowed down, I saw myself. And I quieted down enough for that shadow side to come up. And I didn't love it, but I needed to see it. When the desert fathers and mothers go out into the desert to pray in the early centuries of church history, a lot of times we might think it's so that they can leave the chaos of the world and find the calm waters and the mountaintops, and there they can worship correctly. But if you read them, what they're actually doing is they're going out there to do battle with Satan found within them. 
So, this is a dangerous sort of song. It is the invitation to see and to know yourself. And to be able to calm yourself. So here's what we're going to do as we wrap up together. Next slide. If you have a phone and you are so brave to turn it off, I'm going to invite you to turn it off. I don't know about you, but I, this is like the main way that anxiety comes and finds me all the time. So if you could power it down and we're going to read together. And I'm going to read this psalm four times. It's short, so it won't be that long. Let's go to the next slide. This is a practice called Lectia Divina, which is like sacred reading, and it's four parts. I'm going to read four times. I'm going to give a bit of silence in between each reading. First one is just simply the reading, a Lectio. The second reading, I'm going to invite you into this place of meditation where you might find a phrase or word that is speaking to you and just sit with it. Don't try to like all the way plunge its depths or figure out what's the Hebrew here and what might that mean. Just sit with it. Aracho is prayer. The third reading, I'm going to invite you to hear these words and that you might offer them back to God as your own prayer, your own speaking. And then the last one is contemplation. Where you don't need to do anything, but just to be still and to be grateful. To settle into a posture of gratitude and love. To know that God is fighting for you so you can just be still. So, if your phone's off, good for you. If not, it's okay. Just maybe throw it across the pew. Find a a way to sit that is balanced. And we're going to listen to this psalm together as our way out of this teaching and of this series. The first reading. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother... My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. Second reading. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore.
the third reading. This one is your prayer back to God. As you hear these words, notice your own breath. Is breathing in God's spirit and breathing back out praise. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. final reading is an invitation for you to just be and to abide in what God has already built around you. And out of this silence, we will join together in singing. Hear this prayer. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore.